Hello and welcome to COS Live. You can watch the original video broadcast live on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Visit conventionofstates.com slash pod to learn more. And now, here's COS Live. Well, hello, COS supporters, and welcome to a special edition of COS Live. Uh, my name is Andrew Woodruff, and this is Rita Peters, of course, the Senior Vice President of Legislative Affairs, but also my co-host. Uh, as I said, we have a special edition today. We're going to share with you a recording from a Pennsylvania hearing where Mark Meckler and our own Rita Peters were at, and they're going to, Rita's going to share with you some highlights some of this amazing testimony that uh, occurred in Pennsylvania. Rita, before we get going with this recording, would you be able to just kind of set the stage for the audience, uh, just what happened and just the background? Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm really excited that our audience gets a chance to watch this. What, what you're going to see is a meeting of the Pennsylvania Senate State Government Committee. That's where our Pennsylvania application for an Article 5 Convention of States is currently pending in the state. It's still live, still active. The committee can, can still move on it this calendar year and their session continues into 2022. So we are looking to move it in this committee. Now, this meeting is a little bit different than what we normally have. In fact, it's unprecedented in my experience because it's not an actual committee hearing. Um, it was not even um, an official meeting that the committee members were required to attend. It is what the committee referred to as a round table. Mm -hmm. And the reason this came about is because for several years now in Pennsylvania, the Convention of States project has been opposed um, by, of all things, a Second Amendment rights group. And it's a Pennsylvania-based group. It's called Firearm Owners Against Crime, or FOAC. They are a politically powerful organization in the state of Pennsylvania with a lot of influence over the legislators there. And at some point, the leader of this organization, FOAC, his name is Kim Stolfer. At some point, he got this idea in his head that a convention of states would pose some sort of risk to the Second Amendment. Now, of course, if you've been around for a while, you know that is absolutely not true. At an Article 5 convention called pursuant to our resolution, the only amendments that would be able to be considered are those that limit federal power jurisdiction, impose fiscal restraints on Washington, and set term limits on federal officials. So it's absolutely impossible that anything could come out of our Article 5 convention that would uh, restrict Second Amendment rights in any way. So this whole thing is based on this, you know, fear, this irrational fear that this organization leader has. But because he keeps raising the same fears year after year saying, you know, we could have a runaway convention or something bad could happen. We should be afraid of this process. This committee wisely said, you know, we want to do something a little bit more in depth than a typical hearing where, you know, there's a time limit for proponents. There's a time limit for opponents and it's very structured. We want to just allow both sides of this debate to come in and really, you know, 
one side can express their concerns, the other side can have a chance to respond. We're going to take more time. So they gave us a long time. I think it was a great move by the committee chair to, you know, let us do this because a lot of the committee members had questions and concerns based on, you know, this, um, this misconceived idea. So you're going to see Mark Meckler and myself, but mainly Mark Meckler, <laughs> respond um, to some of these allegations by this organization. So you will you will see Kim Stolfer, who is the president of the FOAC organization in Pennsylvania, and Mark and I, and you'll also see on the screen, I think um, Steve Davies was there. He is our Pennsylvania state director, um, great volunteer state leader in Steve Davies, and um, he was instrumental in setting all of this up. So I'm glad our viewers get to watch it. Mm -hmm. And Rita, uh, before we go to the recording, is there anything that the audience should be looking out for, anything in particular? One of my favorite moments was when, you know, the committee members at one point seemed to get a little bit frustrated, um, not at anyone in particular, but just by the fact that it seems like there can't be any compromise between, you know, this particular gun organization and their stance on Article 5. And Mark just wisely explains and, and just straight to the point, as is his style, Mark explains to them, the reason there can't be any compromise here is because there's not a shared set of facts. You know, Convention of States project is operating on the basis of constitutional text, historical precedents, case law surrounding Article 5, we're operating on the basis of the facts. And we, we can back up the things that we're saying, whereas the other side is operating on the basis of fear. When you question them about the sources or authority for the arguments they're making, they can't respond because there really aren't any. So I think you'll, you'll enjoy watching that part in particular. Hmm. All right, well, let's go to the recording. Well, the, the only thing I want to say is uh, we're getting to the point, especially with our federal government, the way it's acting already, that uh, with the threat of the uh, court packing, that sort of thing, Madison, Hamilton, Jay, uh, Mason, all of them, they understood the times and they predicted the times because History has a tendency of repeating itself. Consolidation of government into a central uh, authority is a huge issue. And uh, my thought is, uh, if not for such a time as this, then when? And I think they were very careful in the crafting of the language. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I'd like to uh, let us get going on this. And uh, uh, let's hear some of the arguments and both sides and proceed from there. Thank you. Let's begin with the Convention of States. Thank you, gentlemen. My name is Mark Meckler. First, let me apologize for my rather shoddy appearance today. Uh, I've been on a tour around the country. I was visiting the largest firearms and ammunition manufacturer in the world. That's Palmetto State Armory in South Carolina, whose CEO is a supporter and friend of ours. 
Uh, so I'm dressed appropriately for that, I guess. And, and then I was at Front Sight Firearms Institute, Training Institute out in Nevada. Our grassroots go out there regularly and learn firearm safety and get trained on the Second Amendment. So I was out there with uh, Rick Green with about 100 of our grassroots. And I was stopping in Detroit last night, and apparently we didn't make the connection. And so I thought this was so important, I actually drove from Detroit last night. So just arrived a little bit ago. I would tell you it was a beautiful drive, but it was dark the whole night. So... <laughs> Literally no time to even hit the hotel. So, and the luggage didn't make it. So I made it no luggage, but I'm here. And it seems like I'm appropriately dressed with the AR on the shirt, right? Welcome to Harrisburg. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad to be here safe and sound in one piece. Well, let me start by echoing what has already been said, which is uh, if article five wasn't drafted for such a time as this, if the second clause wasn't drafted for this, I don't know what it was drafted for. And in fact, we do know exactly what it was drafted for, because Mason's notes reflect this very clearly. Two days before the end of convention, September 15, 1787, Mason stands and he addresses the men assembled. He says something, I'm sure they were frustrated. He spoke the second most of anybody. I'm sure they were tired of hearing from Mason, but he said something that I think is really important for us to look back in history on. He said, we've made a terrible mistake. We drafted this constitution. We gave the power to Congress to propose amendments, but we didn't give the same power to the states, the people acting through the states. And then he asked a question which resonates through very clearly to today. Are we so naive that we believe that a federal government that becomes a tyranny will ever propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny? I see you shaking your head. I think they probably laughed. And we don't have video, of course. We don't have an audio recording, but we do have Madison's notes, which are extraordinarily clear and very cohesive. And on this point, he wrote something very simple. He wrote nin com, which is a Latin abbreviation for no comment. And what that means is there was no debate. Men who debated everything, how to debate, whether they should pray, whether they should pray for a pastor, uh, pay for a pastor, they did not debate this issue. And in fact, what we know is not only did they not debate it, but Elbridge Gerry proposed the language that we now know as the second clause of Article 5, and it was unanimously adopted. It's the only thing I'm aware of that was no debate and unanimously adopted into the Constitution because those men knew they understood human nature. As you said, they had experience with tyranny. They understood the history of governments. And they understood that all centralized powers eventually become a tyranny. They set up a system of beautiful checks and balances, much of which has now been broken by an overreaching Supreme Court and Congress and presidency over the last 115 years. We've now gotten to the point where it's up to us to restrain the federal government. The main argument that you'll hear against using Article 5 is the idea of the runaway convention. And I think it's important that we have the history on where that comes from, who believes it, and what it actually means. And so I want to, I'll be very clear, and hopefully I'm presenting the other side clearly, and, and anybody else can feel free to correct me. The idea of a runaway convention is the idea that once the delegates get into convention, they can and will do whatever they want. And as some have said, we will lose our beloved constitution. It's important to know where our arguments come from. I think especially as conservatives, we like foundational arguments. We like to look back and know where our logic comes from. What's the root of our logic? And I'm an attorney, and so I'm wired that way. I just, before I make an argument, I wanna know what's the foundation for that argument. So I can tell you where it comes from. So the idea of a convention, you don't find that in the American lexicon until the 1970s. 1973, we get Roe versus Wade. I would argue this single most evil decision ever issued by the United States Supreme Court has now resulted in the deaths of over 61 million innocent lives in the United States of America. States started doing what they should 
and they immediately started making Article 5 applications to overturn Roe versus Wade. Along the way, Phyllis Schlafly, a great woman, a great constitutional scholar and fighter for life, had become friends with Chief Justice Warren Burger. Burger's name you might recognize. He was the Chief Justice who signed Roe versus Wade and gave us that very evil decision. He was a liberal activist jurist. Phyllis had become friends with him through her activities on the Bicentennial Commission for the Constitution. I don't begrudge their friendship. I do wonder why she was asking him for advice. She wrote him a letter and the letter asked him what he thought of the idea of such a con uh, convention. And he, what do you think he wrote back? She was talking about attacking the seminal decision of his entire life's career. By the way, he'd never written anything on Article 5. There's no record of him ever speaking about Article 5. No law review articles. We, you can search the literature. There's nothing, not in any of his speeches, not in any decisions. He never had a case where he ruled on Article 5. But he wrote back very strongly to Mrs. Schlafly. And what he wrote back is, it's a terrible idea. We could have a runaway convention, and we might lose our beloved Constitution. Language that you hear today being used by the opponents to this idea, that language crafted originally by Chief Justice Warren Burger, the guy who gave us Roe versus Wade. A little bit ironic, I would say. So that's where the original language comes from. And then you can track that through history and all the stuff is documented on our website. So you can look this up, don't take my word for it. They go out and they find a couple of law professors at Harvard to write articles about the runaway, the idea of a runaway convention. Harvard and a Yale professor write the first articles about the idea of a runaway convention. And this becomes then part of the American political lexicon. Mrs. Schlafly takes that letter and brings it throughout the conservative movement through the rest of her life. She stops actually a couple of years before her death, uh, frankly, because I wrote an article saying it's a little bit ironic to have Phyllis Schlafly carrying around a letter from Chief Justice Warren Burger. And I think she was a little bit embarrassed by that towards the end of her life. And they stopped using that letter. But that's the provenance of this idea of a runaway convention. Now you'll hear opponents say, that part of the reason that they believe we'll have a runaway convention is because 1787 was a runaway convention. For me, this is one of the most offensive misinterpretations of American history that I've ever heard. 1787, the men gathered in convention are people that we all revere. I would argue probably everybody in this room thinks of those men very highly, and we should. They lived in a different era than we lived in. Honor was considered the highest value in their society. In fact, we know of the duel between Hamilton and Burr over honor. It was actually legal in some places to kill somebody over a slander to your honor. George Washington sits as president of that convention. And the argument is that convention was a runaway convention and Washington and all these other great men that were there, Mason and John Jay, all these other men just ignored the charges from their states and did whatever they wanted. That they were supposed to be limited by the charges from their states to amending the Articles of Confederation, but they just decided to disregard all that because, you know, honor be damned. That's just how the founders were, right? I mean, that's obviously ridiculous and it is actually a slander on the founders. How we know factually that it's a slander on the founders is because the first person ever to pull the commissions, the actual written instructions to the commissioners, to the convention from the National Archives, imagine pulling that drawer open for the first time and being that person was Professor Rob Nadelson, who you'll hear from later. And when he read those commissions, he found something extraordinary because he actually had believed this idea of the runaway convention. What he found was language in seven of the nine commissions from, from these states that said these, this language, some version are very close to this language. The commissioner has any and all authority necessary to render the federal constitution adequate for the exigencies of the union. 
any and all authority necessary. No limitation, no language about amending the Articles of Confederation. Now, some people argue, and the reason that we have a mistaken impression over history about the Runaway Convention is because later, after seven states commission their delegates to the convention, after that happens, Congress does what Congress so often does, puts their finger in the wind, realizes, oh, the states are moving and they're going to do something, we should comment on this. Under the Articles of Confederation themselves, Congress has absolutely no authority to call a convention. It's not in the Articles of Confederation. No authority, this is really important. But they do issue a recommendation and they say, we recommend that the states gather in convention. And they do use the same language that those seven states use, but they also add language that says, to amend the Articles of Confederation. So this is where we get historically this idea that Congress sets the convention and says it's to propose the Articles of Confederation, but that is entirely historically incorrect. And I can tell you on a personal level, I'll spend the rest of my life trying to correct this slander against the founders because I hear it from good conservatives all across the country and it's simply factually incorrect. All of this stuff documented on our website, you, you can absolutely go through all of that stuff. So that's where the runaway convention comes from. Now I wanna go forward all the way to modern history to actually calling a convention now. It takes 34 states to call a convention. They're required to submit applications that are the same so that they aggregate. And that means 34 states, two thirds of states agree on what are the terms of the convention, essentially the law of the convention going in. You will commission your own delegates. <clears throat> you will give them whatever instructions you want and every state will do the same. They will be limited by the commissions you give them and they're most certainly limited by the calls for convention. Now, how do we know that the calls for convention limit them? There's a very easy answer to this question. There've been over 400 applications in American history, 400. We've never had a convention of states, why? Because they are required to aggregate, meaning the states have to agree on the terms of convention. Think how nonsensical the argument is that, well, the commissioners can do whatever they want. Well, if that was the case, then why does it matter if they aggregate? Why have we never had a convention in American history? See, those calls, those applications, those resolutions that you have debated here set the grounds for that convention. If somebody were to argue outside of the grounds of that resolution, they would be deemed out of order. Somebody would raise a hand from a conservative state, a conservative delegate or commissioner and say, this is non-germane, this is point of order. And he, would be he or she would be gaveled out. Let's presume I'm wrong and the convention runs away. I'm happy to entertain this presumption. It's ridiculous, it can't happen. It's never happened in American history. We've had over 40 interstate conventions in American history. We have a precisely zero examples of a runaway convention. Let's presume I'm wrong about all of that. All the safeguards fall away. 26 states agreed to do something crazy. And let's say that they put out an application to repeal the second amendment. This is something that I hear regularly. You might tell I'm kind of a second amendment guy, right? And Chuck Cooper sits on our legal advisory board. He's the longest standing outside litigator for the NRA in United States history, in, in NRA history. He's written an open letter saying this is absurd and ridiculous. It's a ridiculous argument that there could be a runaway convention and we could lose our second amendment. But let's just look at math. Now I apologize because I'm a lawyer, so that means I'm not that good at math, but this is pretty simple math. And here's how the math works. It takes 38 states to ratify anything. That's a super, super majority. Today, in the United States of America, there are actually 24 states where you can carry your handgun inside of the state capitol. I've done it in most of them personally. There are actually, I believe, 15 states where you can sling a long arm across your back and sit in the gallery and watch the proceedings. Not sure that's such a good idea, but that is, those are just the numbers. 
If you look at the numbers to ratify any amendment, and we're talking here specifically about an amendment to repeal the Second Amendment, because I know this has been a concern in the state legislature, that means you have to go out and you have to convince 38 states to do that. It takes only 13 states to stop it. That's the inverse math, right? And actually, it takes only one house, the most conservative house, in 13 of the most conservative states in the United States of America to stop that. And the reality is, because you guys know how legislatures work, it actually takes one committee chair in one house of the 13 most conservative states in the United States of America to stop it. So we could run the list. I could tell you Texas, Louisiana, the Carolinas, the Dakotas, Wyoming, all of these states, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, all of these states, even Virginia, which is a shall issue state, they would never entertain such an application. And I've made this, I tell people, look, if you're gonna travel around the country and you're gonna promote the repeal of the second amendment and you're gonna walk into any of those states and you're gonna to suggest to a committee chair that they take up that amendment, I suggest you're carrying a firearm <laughs> because you're most likely going to get chased out by a bunch of legislators who are carrying firearms. It is an absurdity that people believe that you could actually pass such an amendment or even had it heard in enough states. This is a perfectly safe process. The founders were genius at process and structure. They understood two things better than I think anybody in history. They understood human nature and they understood process and structure. And they created a structure that was perfectly safe with a bar high enough that only things that were very mainstream in the United States of America, believed in by the vast majority of Americans who go down, right down the middle of America could possibly pass. They wanted it to be hard, they wanted it to be thorough, and they wanted a massive consensus across the United States of America. Today, there are three things where we have a massive consensus. 80 to 85% of the American people believe we need some form of term limits in Washington, DC. And our application says term, we can discuss term limits for members of Congress. We can discuss term limits for federal, uh, for federal officials like staffers and bureaucrats. And we can discuss term limits even for the judiciary. Second is that we can discuss any fiscal restraints on the federal government that we might desire. That would include a balanced budget amendment, tax and spending caps. I think we need to impose generally accepted accounting principles on the federal government. They have no principles, let alone accounting principles that they use. So we need to put some control on them in that regard. And then I think the most important, we could impose any scope or jurisdiction restraints on the federal government that we desire. And this is where I think the home run is. This is the heart of the matter. The federal government has exceeded its enumerated powers. It was supposed to be a government of limited enumerated powers. By enumerated, it means they're actually written in the United States Constitution. We know what they are. Today, about 40% of the government runs under the auspices of the Commerce Clause, which was intended to be a very small slice of power to the federal government to regulate the shipment of goods across state lines. Today, Department of Energy, Department of Commerce, Department of Agriculture, USDA, FDA, DEA, all of this alphabet soup of agencies run under alleged Commerce Clause authority invented by the United States Supreme Court. We can tell them no. You may not be involved in education. You may not be involved in energy. You may not be involved in healthcare. You may not pack the Supreme Court with more than nine judges. You must be forced to balance your budget. These are things that we can force the federal government to do. And I'll close with this. If we don't, it's on us. History will judge us. And to be very specific, history will judge us in the state legislatures. The state legislatures were given the power to control the federal government. And if we fail to do so, history will not look kindly upon us. The citizens who don't make it happen and the legislators who don't make it happen. So I'll close with that. We'll now uh, recognize uh, 
Val Fennell. Or, I'm sorry, Kim Stolfer. Thank you very much, Senator. <clears throat> um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk and testify here today and to uh, join this conversation. I began this discussion and my review of these issues back in 1995 with the conference of the states issue when uh, Governor Mike Levitt got involved in this. And I've, while I'm not an attorney, I have, I consider myself a student of the law. And to that end, I've tried to learn from the best available legal minds I could. Uh, I've talked to constitutional law professors. We have a panel of attorneys our organization refers to and interacts with on a daily basis most of the time. And looking at these issues, I have been troubled by a number of areas. One, there seems to be this almost incalculable effort to uh, try to describe this as a no-nonsense approach to trying to solve the problems in our society. We recognize there's problems in our society. We have concerns about this. We're not insulated from this. This is probably the most highly attacked uh, right within the Bill of Rights, and that includes Article 1, Section 21 here in Pennsylvania. Um, but what we're concerned about is exactly some of the things that uh, Mr. Meckler just derides. And we've talked uh, about this repeatedly with uh, other professionals, with other legislators, and uh, the possibility of a runaway convention gets so easily dismissed, but it's almost like playing Russian roulette with five rounds and a six-round cylinder. Um, the uh, concerns over whether or not there's going to be any controls over this uh, is not shared by professors uh, like Professor Super uh, from Georgetown Law, Law University uh, or uh, Dr. Joanna Martin and others. Uh, there's, um, to say that our rights uh, cannot be affected by this is a misnomer in, in our opinion. And let's take a look at here uh, for the minute uh, about whether or not um, this is going to be something that's going to require a supermajority. There's nothing in Article 5 that requires a supermajority. And yet it continues to be pushed as if there's somehow going to be some controls of the, over these delegates as well in doing all of this. Uh, the delegates become part and parcel to a, a federal office when it get, and the state does not maintain a control over these. At least that's what uh, we've been uh, informed of by many of the experts that look at this. But uh, looking at the dangers to this, I would go back and cite uh, in 1788, Supreme Court Justice John Jay, where he says this, he called this an extravagant risk. And you fast forward to Justice Scalia, and he says, I certainly would not want a constitutional convention. I mean, whoa, who knows what that would come out of that? And if we can't get a federal government that's going to control itself, as it doesn't now, for whether balancing the budget or respecting rights uh, without evisceration, then how is a new constitution or any changes made in uh, anything that comes out of what purports to be our constitutional convention? Because let's be clear, what they're recommending is convention in the states is a constitutional convention. It's wordsmithing and word games. And I've been part and parcel to that for nearly 40 years. I can recognize this. But at the same time, um, we're going to take and 
supposedly vest the interest of the rights moving forward in our country uh, without really having any control over one of the worst bodies uh, that uh, has resulted in some of the problems we have now, which is the courts. The founding fathers said that um, uh, the courts and uh, the judicial branch was the one that they didn't pay enough attention to. And yet a 2014 memo from the Justice Department states that the courts wouldn't really have anything to say or do about what the outcome is of a constitutional convention. So where are the controls on this? How would there actually be a control? Because when you sit and you look at a constitutional convention, there's really only one vote to accept the conclusions of what is decided in the constitutional convention. At that point, even if hypothesizing that the states had control, they wouldn't have control because the last vote would already be done and passed before uh, they had any ability to even intervene. So there's, there's a great many, many things that we're concerned about. And every attorney I've talked to uh, has said this is a bad idea. And these are attorneys I respect and have been in practice of law from uh, 20 to 40 years. Um, I've tried to gather as much information as I possibly could. And at the same time, uh, try to sort through some of the wordsmithing that I see goes on by some of these groups, the, the term limits groups and the others. Um, including some some cases I don't agree with some of the things that uh, Professor Nadelson does. Uh, he overwhelms you with case law that when you track it down, doesn't exactly say what he says it says. Um, uh, maybe I'm just a layman at this, but I'm, I believe it's important to be clear in how these things are decided by the legislature because it's extremely important uh, for the future of our country. And if we can't hold the current government accountable, uh, and that current account, uh, government is going to be the ones that in the end actually call for the con constitutional convention and they control all the delegates, then are we not risking our heritage and um, the future of our nation by empowering those that we can't control as it is now and won't control themselves? So I don't see this and our organization does not see this as a solution. We see this as a danger, uh, not only to our heritage, but to our nation going forward. And that the problem in our country is not with our constitution or anything, <clears throat> excuse me, the controls within it. The problem we have in our country is of accountability. And I know some of you may laugh at this, but some of my friends consider me to be a little bit of a uh, stickler for procedure. But I'd like to see some legislators walked out in handcuffs because they don't respect the oath of office that I took as a United States Marine. And I think that's part and parcel of the problem we have in our nation is that not being accountable to the law or to the to the most dear things that our nation was founded upon uh, and that are responsible to is uh, leading us down the path of destruction. And so uh, I'll close with uh, I believe strongly in the the issues and the layout that uh, uh, Professor Super laid out in his law review article of these issues and the risks that he put out most recently. And my testimony before the Senate and the House on these issues was clear. This is a decided risk to all of our rights and freedoms. And I don't think it's worth it. And I don't I think it's a great danger. And it frankly scares the tar out of me. So thank you for the opportunity to talk.
Thanks, Kim. Val. Well, thank you for the opportunity for Gun Owners of America to be here today to express our, our concerns. And we've kind of written what we've already written. You've, you've seen our alerts from our members and supporters from across the state. And I think uh, Kim, who I highly respect and for as many years as services on an InfoAC, um, has, has really elucidated our concerns very well. Um, my goal here today is to let everybody know this, and I think it's very important, is we have strong allies on both sides of this issue. Um, you know, we have many of you are sponsors for our, our, our prime bills that we have in the Pennsylvania legislature right now, constitutional carry, the Right to Bear Arms Protection Act. And we do not want to see uh, the Convention of States issue be a divisive issue for the Second Amendment community. And I was very careful in the things that I wrote and to our members and our supporters not to single anybody out for that reason. And so my goal here today is to, uh, while we do have concerns and we do share the concerns that Mr. Stolver has elucidated, um, my goal here today is to really hear um, the Convention of States position and how they, uh, how they would answer those concerns. And so that's really what I would like to hear. Thank you. And we're going to do that right after Chris. Thank you. Uh, first of all, having read uh, Professor Super's uh, commentaries, I, it's very shallow, in my opinion. It does not get into the depth and the actual history of the convention. And <clears throat> Excuse me, Kim. When you had said about the uh, uh, the wordsmithing, our founders were wordsmiths, and they were very meticulous in the way that Eldridge Berry crafted the second clause of Article Five, in that it's for the purpose not of a constitutional convention, but for the purpose of proposing amendments. I'll read you something from commentaries on the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, when the Declaration of Independence severed the bonds which joined the American colonies to the government of Great Britain, the sovereignty formerly exercised by the King and Parliament descended upon the American people. As the ordinary governmental functions could not be exercised by the people acting directly, it became necessary for them to establish governments to which they should delegate certain of their powers. Such governments were speedily created in the various states by means of written constitutions enacted by the people through convention or, other, or otherwise. Late, at a later period, the Articles of Confederation, having proved inadequate, in nas the national government and national government was created by a written constitution which was framed by a convention in the name of the people of the United States and afterwards adopted by the several states. Now, that sovereignty belongs with the people. The Constitution of the United States is very clear that the enumerated powers are the only powers which the, the uh, Congress has. Now, uh, those which are delegated, I mean, which are remaining with the states and specifically with the second clause of Article 5 stating that it is the right and the responsibility of the states to call conventions for such purposes as 
creating amendments to the Constitution, not to reframe the thing, but to create an amendment. That is the sovereign power of the sovereign representatives of a sovereign people. They understood sovereignty. We have never given up and surrendered our sovereignty to whether it's appointing the delegates to restrict them to exactly what they can do. We can have criminal penalties for delegates who act outside the authority when we send them to, the, uh, to such a convention. There have been numerous conventions, including one leading, there was a pre-convention uh, leading up to the Civil War. Uh, most recently, we had a planning convention for the balanced budget amendment down in Arizona. All of those delegates followed uh, Mason's manual, Robert's Rules of Order, and if anything had been brought up that was outside the bounds of the, uh, the proposal, then they would be ruled out of order as uh, uh, Mark had mentioned. But when you look, Mark had mentioned about going back to the, uh, the history of things. And we have to, we've got a responsibility to go back and understand those founders. And it is an insult to, the, uh, to those founders to think that they did not understand what they were writing and uh, including going into and creating a new uh, constitution because that language, again, wordsmithing, that language was uh, used purposely. They didn't say amend or create an entire new articles of convention. They said to create a constitution. The states understood that term. They understood the covenant relationship between the people and uh, their governments uh, in uh, under constitutions, those covenants. And they, they, if you look at uh, uh, Professor, Oh, that's, there's a gentleman who had a four-volume set in 1907, uh, collected uh, the writings of the founders. And the, the, the book most commonly used was the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, you look at uh, Montesquieu and John Locke, they're far distance. They were going back to Mount Sinai and the covenant between God and the people. And that's what a constitution is. It's a, con it's a covenant and sovereignty and the people that you guys work with most directly in our state legislatures, we are the ones most accountable. And Mark had said earlier, you're not gonna get stuff out of committee, let alone out to the floor for a vote uh, in either chamber, let alone two with the exception in Nebraska. Uh, we're, there are some very well done safeguards that our founders came up with, uh, both at the state and the federal levels. And with that, I'll leave it uh, back open to the open discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. I, I, at the beginning, I felt a little bit like I was back in poli sci 101, but we have gone way past that. We are in graduate level doctoral work here now. Uh, and I'm listening and I'm not hearing a lot of uh, room for, for possible compromise. Uh, Steve, Mark, uh, what, uh, let me turn it back over to you guys. Yeah, please. Sure. 
Good morning, gentlemen. I'm Rita Peters. I'm the Senior Vice President for Legislative Affairs with Convention of States. And I drove here this morning from Harris-Sunburg, Virginia, ah. often confused with Harrisburg. And lest you think that Mark's attire is some sort of stunt, I will just tell you that when I got the text this morning that he was going to be showing up in this particular outfit, I was horrified. <laughs> so it was not intentional. At least one of us is dressed appropriately. <laughs> it, I, I'll be brief. If I were to leave here today, having left one impression upon you, it would be that the questions that are thrown out about Article 5 and the Convention of States process, they all have answers that we can find. And I strongly believe that we need to make our decisions based on facts and based on reason, not based on fear. We do not have a situation here of just dueling speculation, where one side says, this is what happened, one side says something else happened, one side says this is what will happen, the other side says the opposite. And I'll just give you a few examples. Um, the 1787 convention, you know, we hear all this about it was a runaway. They, the founders didn't do what they were sent there to do. Well, this is the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy where Michael Ferris, who is now the president of Alliance Defending Freedom, lays out all of the research, all of the historical documents that prove that the founders did what they were sent there to do. They did not violate the public trust. You know, I think I heard Mr. Stolfer say that there's no requirement for a supermajority in Article 5. It's right in the text of Article 5. It's right there. You can read it for yourself. Um, Professor David Super, whose materials have been submitted to you, he claimed five question would not be justiciable, that the courts could not intervene if the convention went beyond its mandate. Well, in this book, The Law of Article 5, written by Professor Rob Nadelson, who will address you a little later today, there are several pages of case law dealing with Article 5 questions. That proves that it is justiciable. The courts have said time and time again, that they will weigh in. And time and time again, what courts have said is that when they do weigh in on Article 5 questions, they will rely upon the history of Article 5 and the history of interstate convention process, which is another point that it's frustrating to people like us when we hear these claims that no one knows how an Article 5 convention would work, like it's this big question mark. Well, the drafters of the Constitution didn't just throw in this word convention for proposing amendments because they were tired and eager to be done and didn't know what else to do. The reason they provided that process in Article 5 is because interstate conventions were quite common back at that time. And all of the major rules were always the same. The states choose and instruct their commissioners. They followed written commissions. Every state had one vote. We know all of this because there is a rich, detailed, documented history 
of interstate convention practice in American history. Another thing Professor Super has said and really staked his whole argument on this idea that an Article V convention would not be a convention of the states. He says that's a made up term that is some sort of a gimmick. Well, I am sure that Professor Super is a very intelligent man, a learned man. He may be a great person, but if Professor Super doesn't know that the US Supreme Court long ago termed this a convention of the states, then I would just question whether you should stake your opinion or decisions on this Article Five question on what he has to say. Because as an attorney, I would tell you that the first thing I would do if I were researching this would be to look for Supreme Court case law and see what they've said about it. And the Supreme Court has called it a convention of states. The states have called it a convention of states. That is exactly what it is. So I would just leave you with that and ask you to remember that the questions do have answers. We don't need to just base our decisions on speculation because the answers can be found. And we're grateful today to be here and have an opportunity to answer your questions. We're obviously not the on, only conservative pro-Second Amendment state dealing with this issue. Remind me again how... Where are we on the list of the 50 states that would need to move ahead? Who, who said yes? Who said no? Uh, who's not even thinking about it? Well, we've passed so far in 15 states, and I'll try to go through the list. And oh, <laughs> Steve has props. So we've passed in Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, Indiana. North Dakota, Oklahoma, Texas, Utah, Arizona, and Alaska. Those are the 15 states where we've passed. Our resolutions have been filed to date in 49 of the 50 states. So every state except for Connecticut has considered the resolution at some point. And we have also passed the resolution in one chamber of an additional of an additional eight states in addition to the 15 that have passed it through both chambers. When, how, how long ago did, did uh, some of these pass? Is this all relatively recent? Uh, the first states passed in 2013. Okay. So did, they, did they all have the same debate that we're having here? It depends on the state. Uh, there are states where uh, primarily the, the usual opposition comes from an organization called the John Birch Society and occasionally Eagle Forum. Uh, we generally don't have problems with gun rights organizations around the country, and that is because there's such a strong gun rights presence on our board with Chuck Cooper uh, and many other constitutional scholars. So the debate definitely takes place. And I would say that in any given legislature, there are usually two or three folks who I would describe as my kind of people on the far right who are opposed to it because they've heard the arguments of the John Birch Society and Eagle Forum over the years. A couple more things I'd like to add. I think it's interesting and a bit surprising in the same way that Phyllis Schlafly relied on Chief Justice Warren Berger that Kim would rely on Professor David Super. He, he may not know David Super's history. David Super is a purely political actor. Uh, right before he began writing his anti-Article 5 stuff, he again, a person with no history 
writing anything about Article 5, or frankly, any of the articles of the Constitution, his primary area of specialty is welfare law. And right before he went to Georgetown, he was the uh, general counsel for Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which is George Soros' main policy arm. And you can see this in his biography on the website. So it's a little bit surprising to me that a guy with the credentials of Kim Stolfer would be quoting David Super. It's very much, as I said, like Phyllis Schlafly quoting Warren Berger. This is a radical activist, leftist, political actor. I also wanna say that we don't rely on just general allegations or just fluffy words. The number of lawyers on our legal advisory board and their stature in the legal community is second to none. Professor Robbie George at Princeton, who's considered the foremost conservative constitutional scholar in America is on our legal advisory board. Randy Barnett runs the Georgetown Center for the Constitution is on our legal advisory board. Uh, C. Boyden Gray, former White House counsel is on our legal advisory board. John Eastman, formerly of Chapman Law is on our legal advisory board. So these are giants in the conservative legal profession. And so when Mr. Stolfer says that he knows some attorneys that have said something different, I'm talking about people who have argued before the United States Supreme Court regularly, who have a vast uh, library of scholarly work. And so I would be interested in knowing the names of the many professors and lawyers that Mr. Stolfer is quoting, and I'd be interested in their stature and their expertise in this area. He also uh, talks about Professor Rob Nadelson, and, and Rob will be here to defend himself, but I have to say, it's, uh, I'm surprised to hear a direct slander saying that somebody of the legal stature and moral character of Rob Nadelson overwhelms you with case, case law that doesn't say what he says it does. That's a sanctionable offense, by the way, by any bar association. And it's really a pretty outrageous allegation. So I'll let Rob address that when he gets back. And then finally, Kim said something that's just absolutely procedurally incorrect. He said, that the convention itself makes the decision and at the end of the convention, it's just over. And it shows a gross misunderstanding of constitutional procedure. And I assume it's just a misunderstanding and that he's not intentionally misstating facts. The convention itself is literally just a suggesting body. It has absolutely no power to do anything. It has no legal authority to do anything other than make recommendations. At, on a personal level, I've never been afraid of any meeting where people are going to sit around a table and make recommendations. Anything that comes out of convention must be ratified by the requisite 38 states, three quarters of states. By the way, that is the highest bar for anything in the entire system of American governance. And again, to reiterate uh, what Mrs. Peter said, that's right there in the Constitution. So I'm surprised that Mr. Stolfer was not aware of that. We promised a open discussion. That's what we're doing. We're not Mm -hmm. Five minutes for you, five minutes for you, five minutes for you. Sure. The good senator from Erie, Dan Locke. Uh, first up, I think I got the mic now. All right. Uh, I appreciate, first off, I appreciate uh, everybody being here today and having this discussion uh, in a format where we can, you know, talk freely and, and have an exchange of information. Um, I, you know, and I apologize for not reading up on exactly uh, what all the positions were uh, leading into this meeting. Uh, but I just wondered if, uh, uh, if Rita or Mark, if you guys uh, could, could lay out clearly for me, you know, why it is you feel so strongly that we need the Convention of States and what, if you have a set of stated goals for that. 
my political background is as a grassroots organizer, and I actually come out of the Tea Party movement. I'm an attorney by training, uh, so I've been engaged in politics for uh, now 11 years or so, 2009, so actually almost 13 years. And what I saw coming through the Tea Party movement was we organized this huge grassroots movement. We had the largest swing class in history since 1938, was elected in 2010. And it was my belief, and I would say in hindsight very naively, that everything would change. And the American people sent a message loud and clear to Washington, D.C., that D.C. was out of control, and that we expected to get their fiscal house in order, that we expected them to abide by the Constitution and respect free market principles. And nothing happened. And it was astounding. It took my breath away. I was on Capitol Hill. I was in those offices. I watched those people, to use a euphemism that's very common today, I watched them get eaten by the swamp. And it happened really fast. Some days, some weeks, some months. We've lost almost all of them. There are a few remainders from that class. And so after I had that experience, I was at a loss of what do we do? If, if the way that I understood American politics, which is we go out and we find people who support what we support, we help them get elected, and then they go to D.C. and they do what we want them to do or what we expect them to do. If that doesn't work, then, then what is it? Is there any hope for the system? And I was blessed to run into Mike Ferris, who Rita has mentioned a couple of times. He, he now runs Alliance Defending Freedom, the largest religious liberties organization in the world. And he said that we were approaching the problem incorrectly. He said that I believed, and he was correct, that we had a personnel problem in Washington, D.C. And, you know, to, to parallel what Kim said, he said, you know, you, you can't just get people to follow their oath. How's that working out for us so far? You can't get people to just honor their promises. How's that working out for us so far? And it's not. And he explained to me that the reason that it wasn't working is because we had broken our actual system of governance. Any of you that's been in business at all understand that if you have a broken system in your business, you will get a broken result. Put all the good people you want inside a broken system and you'll get a bad result. And we have broken our system structurally. And he explained to me the ways in which it's broken. I, I can go through those details. One is this expansion of the Commerce Clause. It's the court's expansion of their interpretation of the Necessary and Proper Clause. It's the fundamental expansion beyond the enumerated powers of the federal government. And frankly, it's all branches of government conspiring against the people. And the founders gave us a way to fix that. And it was a structural fix. And this is what Mike Ferris taught me, that we need to fix the structure, Mark. And if you're going to be engaged in politics and you're not going to fix the structure, then why are you engaged in politics? And he said something to me that was really profound. And he said it facetiously. He said, do you love your children? And I said, of course, I love my children. He said, then why would you doom them to compete in the same loop that you've been losing your entire life politically? You're going to do the same thing and you're going to doom them to doing the exact same thing. Let's just try to elect good people and hopefully they'll do something good. Let's educate. Let's pray. We've been doing all of those things for my entire adult life. My first vote was for Ronald Reagan. Heady days, right? I thought communism was dead. We watched the wall fall. Ronald Reagan was the free marketeer. And under Ronald Reagan, government grew unbelievably. He said he was do away with the Department of Education. He put Bill Bennett in place to do that. And when they left, it was bigger than when they started. And so for me, what I realized is the traditional way of just doing politics, which is campaigning for people, voting, things that we should still do and are very important, are not going to fix our system. We need a structural fix. This is the mechanism that the founders gave us to make the structural fixes to our government that we believe are necessary. I understand that, Mark. What I'm asking you is, is what, what specific items are you trying to fix? 
So there are three, as I described, subject matter areas. And let me describe some of the potential applications within those subject matter areas. First, let me describe there's a reason we did them as subject matter areas and didn't say, here's a particular amendment. We have a history of over 400 applications. They, they never make it to convention because people argue about, for example, what's the right balanced budget amendment? Almost everybody agree about 80, 85% of Americans say we need a balanced budget amendment. But if you were to put 10 people around a table, they would argue about what's the right one. So one is we need some kind of fiscal restraints. I believe some form of a balanced budget amendment. But in addition to a balanced budget amendment, we would need, for example, an amendment that removes the power of the federal government to put unfunded mandates on the states. Otherwise, we say balance your budget and they say, great, we'll just push all these programs down on you. You guys can tax for them and you'll have to run the programs the way we want. So I think we need some financial reforms, balanced budget amendment, generally accepted accounting principles imposed on the federal government, perhaps tax and spending caps tied to GDP or population growth plus inflation. These are some of the ideas for things that would fall within the fiscal restraints category. Second is the term limits category. Again, 80 to 85% of the American public say and have said for over 30 years, they want term limits on Congress. Personally, I'm a little bit ambiguous about term limits on Congress. You know, I don't like the idea that we're going to rotate those guys through and we're going to leave the staffers and the bureaucrats behind because we're just going to increase their power. And so the reason we drafted our application to say term limits on federal officials is because we can limit staffers and bureaucrats as well if we put term limits on congressmen. So I think that's an important adjunct to that. I also think it's important and not thought about enough that if you look at every study that's ever been done on the federal bench, the longer a judge sits on the federal bench, the more they rule in favor of an expansive interpretation of government power. And so I think it would be a good idea to put term limits on the federal judiciary as well. We have come to this point in American history today where people are talking about packing the Supreme Court, legitimately talking about packing the Supreme Court. And we could limit the scope, power, and jurisdiction of Congress to do that. We could limit the Supreme Court to nine if we were to so desire. So these are some very specific areas. Finally is the scope and jurisdiction area. And again, as I said, to me, this is really the sweet spot. So for example, if you poll the American public, they don't like the Department of Education. And that's nonpartisan. That's on both sides of the aisle. There's no reason for a Department of Education. You know how to educate your kids here in Pennsylvania. It's confusing. They take power away from you. They give you money back that they take from you and they attach strings to it. So we could do away with the Department of Education and the Department of Commerce, perhaps, Department of Energy. We could limit their power, structurally limit the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government. This is one that's really important to me. In the state legislatures, on average, I don't know where it falls exactly here in the Commonwealth, but on average, 60% of state budgets are controlled in one way or another by the federal government. This is the most common complaint I hear from state legislators. Like, we would do this thing, but we can't because of the strings from the federal government or the mandates by the federal government. It shouldn't be that way. I mean, you mentioned state sovereignty. The states should be sovereign over most of their affairs. And so we can take the power away from the federal government to control what you guys do here in Pennsylvania. And by the way, I think most of your voters would be horrified to know that the federal government has so much input over what you guys do. Then when they vote for you, they think they're putting you in charge and they have a lot more faith in you than they do in the federal government. So that's, those are some of the examples of things that we could do. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Mark, I, I like going back to the history and to kind of go to the previous question. Uh, 
under Woodrow Wilson's administration, uh, he had this favorite book called uh, Philip Drew Administrator that he kind of shopped around to all the members of Congress. He wanted Congress to start delegating the authority to the executive branch, uh, write pieces of legislation very broadly, and uh, allow the administration to create law through uh, basically regulation. And we're suffering under the impacts of that uh, from the regulation that come down on us through uh, unfunded mandates. Uh, we're seeing it now. We, we deal with it all the time with uh, our Department of Environmental Protection and others. And the constitutional amendment process, uh, here in Pennsylvania, we ran into an issue where the governor was exceeding his authority on a massive scale. And we proposed an amendment to the Constitution uh, last session, and again this session, and the people of Pennsylvania voted for that. And they stripped that administrative power from the government and allowed and put it back into the hands of the legislature where it belongs. Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, the convention, the uh, amendment process as defined by Jerry, I mean, uh, George Mason, George Mason, yes, they, they understood what we experienced here in Pennsylvania with the governor uh, violating the constitutional rights of the people of the Commonwealth. We took that amendment process and we put it to work and the people of Pennsylvania are better for it today. And I think we're in the same situation with the federal government with exceeding its uh, uh, enumerated powers. And it's well past time, in my opinion, that we start looking at the ways through the amendment process to fix what has been broken for decades. And I'll put that right back. Like I said, Woodrow Wilson got this started because what happened was Congress realized very quickly that they could do that and then sit back and say, well, uh, that's a separation of powers issue. When we're the, the, the elected, whether it's the US uh, Congress or the state legislatures, we are the sovereign representatives of a sovereign people. The sovereigns make the rules and we need to start living up to and start uh, exercising that authority and responsibility. Thank you. If I, Doug, might. I suspect you've attended a couple of uh, graduate seminars on some of these issues, too. Go ahead. I'm sorry, you probably taught them. <laughs> as I'm aware you did as well. Thank you, everybody, for being here. This is a great discussion. Uh, I know we've covered a lot of ground. You may, may be repeating yourselves here, but, but Val and Kim, are there any things, because I'm on both sides here. I, I, I stand with Second Amendment, and I see the necessity of the Convention of States. So it's a hard spot to be in. So, uh, Val and Kim, is there anything Convention of States could, could uh, assure you with to get you off the position that you're at now, right? As, as far as opposing it. Convention of States, what kind of guarantees can you really put in place? I know you mentioned some of them, but if, you just, if we have a little discussion here, is there ever, ever going to be a meeting point or this is just something we can ever cross that bridge? Please, over to you. I don't know how this process is supposed to work. So I wanted to ask a make a couple points here. Um, 
since we're talking about history, let's talk about Hamilton in Federalist number 85, where he says he dreads the consequences of another convention because the enemies of the Constitution want to get rid of it. Now, I have documents that show that Soros is also behind this effort. But in a larger sense, I'm a pragmatist. So I'd like to take a look at just going back to 2020 and how the social media giants and the billionaires got involved and manipulated the process of our elections. Whether you believe it was stolen or whether you believe it was uh, interfered with, um, that, that's e up to each of us. But I see this process as not only being, in my, as I put it earlier, Russian roulette. Um, I see this as a process where we have billionaires that will be happy, more than happy, to try to get in here to influence uh, the outcome of a constitutional convention. And again, I'm still not uh, assured as to uh, how this process would be insulated because Congress is going to be the one calling the delegates. I mean, that's clearly in the Constitution. So if that's going to ha happen, how is the state going to control anything that the delegates do? Uh, I know that the, what the resolutions have in it about the controls the state's going to put on it, but that's only for the convention getting to the call to Congress for a convention. Uh, might might I ask where that is in the Constitution? I'm very I'm a constitutional attorney. It doesn't say in the Constitution that Congress names the delegates. And so I'm, I'm just astounded by that allegation. I'm very familiar with the language of the United States Constitution. Well, so I'd, I'd like to ask me Mark, to that section of the Constitution. I'd like to ask Mark, where does it where does it justify no, no, that? Kim, the I, I just you just said it's in the Constitution. That right. Congress uh, appoints the delegates. So I'm just asking you where it is. I have to look a reasonable it question. Uh, you just yeah. made an allegation. Right. So just point me to the section, the article where it says that. If you give me a minute, I will look it up. But I don't have that right. I have it right here. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm an old fart. What can I tell you? Um, but I, I refer on rely on my documents here. And um, yeah, so, I'm happy to wait. It's, yeah. It should well, be easy and, to find. Article five is very short. But Doug's question was. Do we see any realistic chance for compromise? And I'm, that, that was the question I wanted to ask at the end, but he, he, it's the, the, the biggest question of the day. If I could respond to that briefly, sure. Mr. Chairman, I, I think one point that came out to me in the various opposition materials that were submitted to you before today that I think we could see as a point of agreement is that the opponents say, well, the problem that we have today is not with the text of the Constitution. And I think we would largely agree with that. The problem isn't in the text per se. The problem is in the way the text of the Constitution is interpreted today. The Interstate Commerce Clause is a perfect example of that. The General Welfare Clause is a perfect example of that. They've been consistently interpreted over and over again by the courts, by Congress itself, to give the federal government too much power. So the only solution to that that I know of, I, I'm a constitutional attorney as well. My background before COS is with the Rutherford Institute, which is a nonprofit civil liberties organization. The only solution that I know of that the Constitution actually gives us for when the Supreme Court, all branches of the federal government are wrongly interpreting the Constitution itself. The solution lies in the amendment process provided to the states 
in Article 5. And so the whole idea here is to place additional, very clear boundaries that effectively overturn the bad precedents that have come out of the Supreme Court and have come out of Congress itself and in the liberties that it's taken with some of the language in the Constitution. Um, I'd also like to respond briefly to the idea that the founders themselves were so opposed to a second convention. If you read those documents in context, what they're talking about was the movement at that time to immediately hold a second constitutional convention because some people were unhappy with the draft of the constitution. That was what Hamilton was opposed to. And then I'd like to also just briefly respond to this allegation about George Soros being behind our movement. And I don't know if Mr. Stolfer is aware or not, but a few years ago, about 250 leftist organizations, many of them funded by George Soros himself, came out publicly with a press release deriding this whole idea of the Convention of States project and publicly stating their opposition to it. And, you know, it's just really interesting to me to think about if it were really true that George Soros were behind this, then why wouldn't his kind of people be the ones supporting and voting for the Convention of States project? They aren't. We have not gotten them to see um, the wisdom of what we're trying to do. That's right. You can look at the map and see the states where our resolution has passed. And it's not generally in the states that are strongholds for George Soros. Senator, in answer to your question, I think uh, we have John Vallecco on the on the Zoom call, who's our executive vice president in Washington. And I think you would like to answer that question. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Dr. Fennell. And uh, Senator Mastriano, I think that that's the question that we need to answer is, you know, can, can we come together on this? Um, there's been persuasive arguments on both sides that I've heard. Uh, Mark, um, I love your shirt. Um, you're doing a great job. And I know you, you cherish the Second Amendment like, uh, like we all do. Um, and, and I agree with, um, I agree with Kim Stolfer, you know, there needs to be more accountability and taking a few legislators away, uh, you know, with the Sergeant of Arms, it might not be a bad idea. And, and Mark, I also agree that the, um, the Congress has been a huge disappointment since the Tea Party days and, and Congress, it just acts as a ratchet against our rights. You know, when when one party, the Democrat Party, has complete control, which they have had in, in a few times in recent history, 1992-93, uh, control uh, three and four, control of the White House and the Congress, and we get the so-called assault weapons ban, we get the Brady Bill, and they ratchet down on our rights, and then uh, the voters respond, and we put people in charge to to turn things the other way. But it's just the ratchet going back, uh, being reset. It's not turning uh, the screws or the bolts that have been tightened against us. Um, and then Democrats get unified control again in, in 2009. And we, and we get um, uh, we get Obamacare without a single Republican vote. Um, and then the voters respond again. And, and, and again, there's no relief of the pressure. There's just a resetting of that ratchet and that's been the model time and time again and and the the uh, congress itself has turned 
into a runaway uh, convention. Um, and, and the Supreme Court and the courts, not just Supreme Court, but uh, in particular, the uh, courts of appeal have turned into a rolling uh, constitutional convention. So, you know, something has to be, be done about this. As uh, Dr. Fennell said right at the outset, you know, we, we do have uh, concerns, uh, but we also recognize that there are friends, great friends on either side of this debate, um, friends who, who have really dug into this uh, uh, deeply and who re we respect uh, greatly uh, on either side. So, you know, the questions that we're dealing with that uh, on this is how will this impact the Second Amendment? Because that's, as an organization, you know, that's all we care about. Obviously, there are bigger issues at play. Um, and so we need to determine, you know, if, if this is something that seriously could uh, impact in a negative way the Second Amendment, then we, we are compelled to engage 100%. And if it's not, um, you know, we, we will take a, um, you know, we'll keep an eye on it because we're concerned and our, our membership is concerned. But quite frankly, um, you know, our bigger issues in Pennsylvania are passing constitutional carry. Does this help us pass constitutional carry or hurt our efforts? Probably, it, it most certainly doesn't help our efforts. Um, our right. efforts nationally is to pass concealed carry reciprocity and some other things. And will dividing our base help us pass our core issues? No. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for the the time to speak here extemporaneously and I'll, I'll wrap up now, but I really appreciate hearing the arguments on both sides. Um, you know, I think there's some compelling arguments to be made and, and um, you know, back to the beginning, what, what Dr. Fennell said, we have put out some things and we, we, we did want to get feedback in, in this forum. And, um, you know, as we go forward uh, to, to evaluate what our role in this uh, will be going forward. And, and thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman and Senators. Uh, for well, and I think what, what I'll encourage all of you to do is to keep um, chatting uh, after this meeting today. The example I always use um, back home when uh, people say, you know, why can't you guys get anything done? I, I, uh, I've got lots of examples, but uh, I, I, I talked to them about one that they've never heard of before, which was a fight between optometrists and ophthalmologists. And I have to tell you that when a lot of us get elected, we're not sure, yeah. okay, who's who. And they fought for 20 years. They finally smoked the peace pipe on a couple of issues. And the damn thing went through the, the House and the Senate and the governor practically unanimously. I suspect if you all came to terms, it would be a lot easier for us. Might Chris, I address the compromise issue? Uh, sure. So um, I think I've been meeting with Kim for over five years now on multiple occasions and uh, very glad to have the conversations anytime. Uh, number one, any guy that's got a Marine Corps flag in the background, you might notice there's a Marine Corps medallion on here. My son is a Marine, so hoorah, Kim. And so I have respect there. The problem is if you want to have compromise, you have to have a shared set of facts. I mean, that's, that's where it starts. What are we actually dealing with here? And I will say, and this is just factual, on the numerous occasions that I've sat down with Kim and he says, there's no law, we don't know what will happen. I've offered him these books. I've told him that the facts exist. I, I have asked him on repeated occasions to tell me the nationally known scholars or nationally known professors or figures 
on the right, because that's important to me, that they, they need to have my political perspective, otherwise I'm not that interested, the nationally known figures who support his position. Because this is the fact of that. And this is an irrefutable fact. In the United States of America today, every single nationally known conservative, law professor, talker, politician, who has taken a position nationally known on the Convention of States is in favor. There are no exceptions. Rush Limbaugh, God rest his soul, Levin, Hannity, Beck, Shapiro, all the professors I named on our legal advisory board, there are no exceptions. On the flip side, every single, this sounds like a radical, crazy statement, every single leftist group in America that you would know the name of signed a press release saying this is the most heinous thing that could happen in the United States of America. That press release led by Center on uh, Budget and Policy Priorities, which is David Super's group, right, against this, led by Common Cause, led by, and on that press release, Planned Parenthood, La Raza, Code Pink, MoveOn.org, they say all the same things. They use all the same talking points that Kim Stolfer uses. And so for me, I'm struggling because I'm happy to have the discussion. I'm happy to debate facts. But that's not a debate when somebody says, hey, there are a bunch of people who we respect and rely upon who disagree. And I can't look at somebody's CV. I can't look at their writings. I can't know what they've written about this subject matter. They've done no case law research. And they're quoting from leftist professors who know nothing on the subject. So it makes compromise very difficult. I will sit down. I will discuss these treatises, whether the law exists, what it says, what the facts are. I will look at Hamilton in context. He was quoting Hamilton out of context. The context matters. But if we can't come to a shared set of facts from which we can discuss, if one side is going to bring facts and books and the law to the table and the other side is going to bring opinion, that's not a debate. And I've been trying for five years with Mr. Stolfer, with all due respect, I've brought in senators. I brought in Senator Jim DeMint personally to sit down with Kim and have this discussion out of respect. I spent the money. I brought talent. It's, it's very difficult to move forward because the position is based on error and missed. In those five years, did you guys get any closer? No. The arguments are identical. There's been no change. And on every occasion, the same thing happens where he'll say, well, it's not a supermajority or Congress appoints the delegates. And I say, I'm a constitutional attorney. Can you show me those things? And he says, well, I'll have to look it up. And then he never does. And so it's, it's very difficult as a lawyer who debates based on facts and presents evidence to have a debate or even a discussion that works that way. Well, since I'm since I'm being referred to here, let's have a talk. OK, uh, we sat down with Senator Eichelberger and Stephen Bloom years ago, and we talked about these issues. At that point, I had documents I brought with me and gave to you, Mark. Uh, uh, Doctors Olson, uh, Dr. Martin, uh, our attorneys. Uh, Joshua Joanna Martin Prince. is not a doctor, by the way. She's actually married to a white supremacist. She's a crazy woman in Tennessee, and she, she's not a doctor. It's not even in her title. You don't even know who she is. Well, she has a jurisdiction. Martin, who blogs under the name Publius Holda. She's married to a white supremacist that did time for aiding and abetting, harboring white supremacists who killed a Jewish talk show host. So if that's who you're going to quote as your authority, I'll go to Randy Barnett and, and I'll go to Robbie George of Princeton. If I, if I can say, interject something here, uh, the, the comment about uh, the Congress appointing the delegates, 
I can speak personally because I was appointed by uh, Speaker Terzai to be a part of the planning convention down in Arizona for the balanced budget amendment. It is the state legislature that does the appointments of the delegates. And I've also studied the 1860, I think it's four, it's been a while, uh, planning convention uh, trying to avert the uh, Civil War. And all of those delegates that attended were appointed by the state's legislatures. Right. Senator, uh, if you could I uh, interject here for a moment, please? Sure. Um, as you know, I like to study these issues. So I have the Congressional Research Service report that on page four says that uh, second, while the Constitution is silent on the mechanics of an Article Five convention, Congress has traditionally laid claim to broad responsibilities in connection with a convention, including one, receiving, judging, and recording state applications. Two, establishing to summon a convention, procedures to summon a convention, and four, determining the number and selection process for its delegates. And nothing in the Constitution requires Congress to permit states to select delegates. Congress determines the number and selection process for its delegates. So Congress is free to select the delegates, and Congress may appoint themselves even as delegates. That's right from the Congressional Research Service report on it. I will say that's not from the Constitution. Yeah. I, I understand the reason. Uh, but again, you've got it. You have to take this into the context, and then you also have to take a look at the history, which the courts do. And the history behind this is that all of the conventions that have happened uh, since the adoption of this Constitution have been done with the state legislatures appointing the delegates. Yeah, I, I would add the Congressional Research Service is... Uh, I'm going to put it kindly, not widely respected. <laughs> there is one thing that was said in there that is actually true, which is many times, hundreds of times over the years, somebody in Congress has alleged that they hold some kind of authority over the Article 5 process, and they've tried to pass bills that, that would say that. Not one of those bills has ever been introduced in committee, let alone been debated and voted on, because the idea is so absurd and so, and, and we hear this, this Congressional Research Service, I, I believe that was 78. I mean, it's very old. Uh, and that's kind of the main argument they use, but it's not in the Constitution. There's no constitutional support for that. I would con just continue to go back, just point to me in the Constitution where it says that Congress appoints the delegates. Well, I have a question. Should I not rely on Justice Scalia and his concerns about a con uh, constitutional convention? Yeah, you actually absolutely should. And so I'll clarify that because that's, that's another gross misstatement. And, and I, I have to protect Scalia's legacy here. Scalia spoke twice in his career uh, about the right. idea of a convention. One time in his career, actually late in his career, he was asked a very brief question about, and the question was this, what do you think of the idea of a constitutional convention? And he said, Exactly what Kim said, whoa, you have no idea what you get out of that. That's a very bad idea. Earlier in his career, he sat for over an hour interview on the idea of an Article 5 convention. And it's recorded and you can listen to it. And he has extensive comments and he says, I believe this is the only way that we can possibly fix the Constitution. And so this is such an insult to Scalia, who I think is, well, I actually think Thomas is better, but Scalia, one of the greatest judicial minds of our era, who actually does know the difference between a constitutional convention 
and a convention of states. The idea that Justice Scalia would somehow be confused about that when somebody says a constitutional convention versus a convention of states, he knew very well the difference and he spoke about the differences. I prefer to think that he actually learned through his experience with government that it was a bad idea, if you ask me. Uh, opinion. I'm, I'm, it's not, not correct. I'm not <laughs> detecting a lot of room for compromise. Just uh, I'm usually uh, pretty optimistic, but Chris, anything else? I'm Mark. I'm glad you brought it up because the uh, there was a huge distinction between those two uh, times that he's commented on it, and he was asked in detail. That was an interview on the article five, uh, the second half of article five and the, uh, an outright convention, constitutional convention. He absolutely knew the difference between the two and he's a wordsmith. Uh, he understood during the interview and I'm sure he understood during the, uh, uh, when he was questioned about an outright uh, constitutional convention. The man knew the distinctions and uh, he wasn't one to uh, make that kind of a misinterpretation. No, and he was asked a very specific question in yes. both cases using specific language. These guys are professional wordsmiths. They understand the difference in the language of the question they're being asked. And that's why he gave two very different answers. And I, I know Kim can believe whatever he wants about what he thinks Scalia might have thought. It's not what he said. And here's another thing, knowing that he'd had an extensive interview on that and was on the public record with uh, a convention of states, had he actually changed his mind, I think he would have gone into depth in that question being asked if, if he had thought that it was uh, regarding a convention of states First versus a constitutional convention, he very, he certainly, in my mind, would have gone to great lengths to explain the change in his opinion. Thank you. Any other closing remarks? I, I would simply close with this. I asked this question all over the country. If not this, then what? Washington, D.C. is controlled by Marxists. We literally, I never thought I would say this. There are Marxists sitting in the White House today planning the destruction of this nation. There are Marxists in Congress. There are open Marxists in Congress right now. And they're running our country. I was on a flight last night coming out of Austin. And there was a gentleman probably in his mid-60s, and they were not happy with the level of compliance on his mask wearing. We were cleared off the plane, four police officers in body armor and face masks, wielding batons, dragged somebody's grandfather out of that airplane. I don't know, that guy will never fly again. I don't know if he was flying for work. He might lose his job. He may never be able to visit his grandkids again. That's the country we live in today. And what our opponents always say, I say, what, what are we going to do if not this? If you have something that you suggest as an alternative to this, we all agree Washington, D.C. is broken. How do we fix it? Because if you have an alternative and it looks like it might work, I'll do it. I'll take my entire organization. I'll take the budget. I'll take the personnel. 
I'll try and convince the grassroots activists that we need to do whatever these guys say. But what I hear from our opponents is the same every time. And with all due respect, what I hear is fear. We're worried about, we're scared, we're afraid that something will happen. That's not our heritage. This country wasn't built on fear. This country was built by men and women and families of courage. When they decided that they were going to sign the Declaration of Independence, they signed their death warrant. And many of them did not make it. And who are we as their progeny? Are we worthy of standing in their shoes, of following in their stead? Are we so afraid of using the mechanisms that they gave us that we'll stand by and watch our country fall to the Marxists? And I will tell you, there are 5 million people in this country that say no, that are signed up for Convention of States. Right here, there are 90,000 in this state, 90,000. The question was asked, will this help pass constitutional carry? The answer is, hell yes, it will, because right now, our activists are very angry with the gun rights organizations in this state. And they'll not support anything that these gun organizations are doing because these are their now sworn enemies on Article 5. And not yours. I know you haven't taken a strong position. But, but I will say on Kim Stolfer's organization, and they should be working with these organizations. Every one of those 90,000 should be signed up with these organizations and members of these organizations fighting for everything they want. So I would just close by saying, we got to do something. We got to do something. Go to the airport, watch somebody get dragged off an airplane, and you tell me how that affects you. It's the first time I've seen that personally. I knew it happened. I'd seen it in the news. I'd never been there personally to witness this. That's going on in our country all the time. And if you want to know where we're headed, look at what's going on in Australia. And people, and people will say, oh, well, we, we've got so many guns. And that's great. We do have so many guns. But people are being beat down on the streets of Australia. That's a Western nation. We're not far behind that. What I saw last night on that airplane rivaled anything I've seen in any of this footage from Australia. In a Texas airport, we have to do something. I'm Steve Davies. I've been uh, state director and had other leadership positions here in PA on this effort since mid-2014. Uh, We're not going to quit. We're not going to give up. Um, you asked, somebody asked about guarantees earlier. What I tell people when they ask me about guarantees is you, we had the same guarantee the guys that signed the declaration had. That's it. And, you know, I can't, we can't guarantee anything. We can't guarantee that people won't try to introduce amendments in a convention that are ridiculous. And they'll be voted down no different than the ridiculous stuff that you guys have to vote down here in the General Assembly. But I've come to the conclusion that we may have a cultural problem here in Pennsylvania. If you look at the, that map, we're culturally very different from the, the, those states, apparently. And I'm a native Texan. I know we're very different here in Pennsylvania from Texas. And, I, you know, these states lean towards small government. They lean towards resisting federal overreach. But I don't see that right now in Pennsylvania. And I'm telling people it's not a problem with the people that are currently sitting in the General Assembly. The problem is with us and the people that apparently we're, we're sending there. We're not asking the right questions we're not doing good due diligence, but this is something that, that has to happen. And, uh, you know, for the sake of my kids and my grandkids and all of yours, we can't let this thing go or we're going to lose it. So thank you very much for the time. And uh, you'll see me around. We're not going away. Okay. Thank you all very much. Very informative. 
This has been the podcast version of COS Live. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.